0: everyone, and welcome back to listeners following along with the series we are conducting with Dr. Julie Owen, author of We Are the Leaders We've Been Waiting For, Women in Leadership Development in College, due out in June 2020 from Stylus Publishing. My name is Kate Radford, and I serve as the Associate Director for Leadership Education and Development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University, and I'm excited to be back with you this week in my role as guest host for this series of episodes for the NASPA Leadership Podcast. In our last episode, we had an opportunity to talk with Julie about some of the primary topics in her book, and this week we're going to talk more specifically about the role of narratives, counter-narratives, and courageous conversations in leadership education. Before we go any further, I wanna go ahead and introduce the folks that are with us on this episode. So up first, we have Sherelle Hassel-Goodman. Sherelle is a PhD candidate in the higher education program with a specialization in women and gender studies at George Mason University. Prior to arriving at George Mason University, she worked in residence life, sorority and fraternity life, and academic advising. Sherelle's research interests are first-generation college students, leadership, critical participatory action research, and engaging in Black feminist theory. Joining us again this week, of course, is Dr. Julie Owen. Julie is an Associate Professor of Leadership Studies at George Mason University where she coordinates the leadership studies major and minor and teaches interdisciplinary courses on socially responsible leadership, civic engagement, higher education, and community-engaged research. Also with us is Dr. Jennifer Pigza, who is the director of the Catholic Institute for, Jennifer, help me out. Give me the full name on your.
1: Yeah, it's quite an alphabet soup. It's the Catholic Institute for Lasallian Social Action.
0: I knew I would mess it up if I tried, so thank you for helping me out. An adjunct assistant professor of leadership at St. Mary's College of California. Jennifer calls herself both a practice-oriented scholar and a scholarly practitioner. Her work and writing focus on critical pedagogy, leadership, critical reflection, and institutionalizing community engagement. She is the lead editor of the forthcoming book, Women in Leadership in College, a Facilitation Manual. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Aoi Yamanaka. Aoi is an assistant professor and associate director of academic services in the School of Integrative Studies where she teaches courses on social justice and global leadership. She also serves as an academic advisor and her advising focuses on student affairs, student development and student engagements. Dr. Yamanaka's current scholarship focuses on social justice issues in higher education, cultural leadership and civic engagement in a diverse environment. So welcome to y'all, we're so glad to have you with us. Appreciate you being here, especially during a pretty um, unique time in our world. We are living in the midst of a pandemic, um, which we all know invites new challenges, um, practical, spiritual, developmental, and so much more. Um, so as we get started here, I thought I'd ask you about your experiences with sheltering in place. So. Jennifer, how about you start us? What has been a gift or a challenge of this time? What are you learning while you're sheltering in place?
1: Yeah, thanks, Kate. It's awesome to be here and with these pretty phenomenal colleagues as well. Um, So I've been sheltering in place here in California now for this is week number nine as of this recording. And I think what I'm learning a lot about is um, about integration rather than separation. Um, I'm a person who actually doesn't like to bring work home. And yet here I am working, parenting, living, uh, doing it all from home. And so kind of coming to a place of of thinking about integration differently. Um, Also thinking about parenting really differently. So during this hour, I'm hoping that my son is fully occupied with his movie. And if not, he may make a guest appearance. So thank you. How about you, Julie, what are you, what's What's happening for you during this time?
2: I just wanna reflect that we have three parent scholars on this call. So um, I'm amazed at how you all navigate all of that and the added complexity to your world is unbelievable. Um, I, you know, I think like every, a lot of people, I've been thinking a lot about privileges I hold and how much to um, get more awareness about how like the wealth disparities in the world affect the health disparities and just have a lot of fear about what's happening elsewhere um, and But I think the biggest gift from this has been time and, and like the value of communities I had sort of lost touch with. So I've had all these really interesting conversations with um, college friends, you know, that I haven't talked to in 20 or 30 years and um, family that's dispersed around the country, you know, that I'm now checking in with. I might not normally have taken time to do that. So I feel like there's been this weird gift of everyone being in isolation has actually caused more of us to reach out. So I'm really enjoying that. Um, What do you think, Sherelle?
3: Well, I I appreciate the question because I think each week I have a different experience around how I'm feeling. Um, I think the hardest adjustment for me is um, similar to Jennifer with uh, learning how to parent from home with a two-year-old that needs a lot of time and attention. Um, and while I used to teach, you know, junior high, uh, teaching at the preschool level is different, right? And so, learning how to exercise patience and have an appreciation for skill sets that you don't normally have, right? Um, so I think that's something that I, I've been working on. Also, just letting go of like control, like you don't have any, like there's no control, and that's okay. And things are going to change, and we'll, you know, we'll get through this, right? And it's going to be rough, and But how do you, um, I think, focus on what matters too. I think sometimes we're so focused on everything that's happening that we feel guilty for not accomplishing and just without putting things in context about this is a crisis across the world and let's understand that and be, you know, patient with ourselves and with others. Absolutely. what what's it been like for you?
4: For me, also every week is different, but overall, I would say I have been able to recognize or have been able to see what I couldn't see in the past. So for example, like a work-related thing is I have been able to recognize students' various learning styles. So students, for example, students who didn't speak up in class before COVID-19 have put so much effort and thought on online discussions. And then that made me think how I should change my teaching style next semester. And then I need to think about more inclusive way to teach courses to think about, you know, various learning style. And in terms of personal life, because my partner also worked from home and I work from home, you know. Um, we didn't recognize our we didn't recognize our work before. But by working home, I think we increase our, our understanding of each other, the work more. So that has been rewarding.
0: I agree with that. My husband is also working from home and it's been so interesting, like hearing him on phone calls. I'm like, Oh, I didn't realize that's, you know, like what your day looked like. And that's how you talk on a business call that I'm like, not usually privy to. And um, it's been so interesting to, and, and to, be more, um, like, familiar with his colleagues because they're in calls, you know, Zoom calls all the time, and we're walking by, and I'm saying, hey, and um, it has given me a real, a glimpse into his life as well, so good point. Well, thank you all so much for being willing to share a little bit about um, yourselves and sort of what's going on in your world. Um, I want to start today with a, a few questions for Julie about the use of narratives in the book, and then we'll get to hear from everyone else about their involvement and sort of their take on narratives and leadership education. Um, So, Julie, we talked last week about the need to be more inclusive in how we approach leadership and feminism. Can you talk um, sort of, I think, related to that about the concept of narratives versus counter narratives and why they're both important to the text?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you just heard, I think um, you read these nice bios of us and people maybe tuned out and then you asked us a powerful question and we each had a story to share. Right, and it was amazing how I bet people have more of an understanding where we're coming from based on the story or the narrative we just shared about us navigating um, social distancing than just a list of credentials. And that's sort of the same concept we had with the book, right? Which was there's a lot of data points um, in the book and a lot of research went into it. And then we also wanted to complement that with um, stories of real world college student women and, um, and also folks who don't gen- identify as gender binary. Um, how they sort of navigate the, their world of leadership. So um, I think that sh- like using narratives or telling stories is like a profound tool for self-revelation, reflection and healing. Um, and they really, you know, the stories are powerful because they allow other people to access our thoughts and feelings and experiences and then find connection with those too, right? I can't tell you the number of students in my classes or have used a book said, oh my gosh, I called my mom and read her that poem that one of the participants wrote or um, this person's narrative resonates so much with me, I thought about my life in a new way. So we can see how that story sharing connects people. Um, And then you asked about counter narratives. I use the work of Zamudio et al, um, who talk about counter narratives as the telling and listening to stories from those who've been historically marginalized. So, you know, these are stories that run counter to the hegemonic normative kind of approaches Um, and making space for counter narratives creates empowerment and agency for those who may previously have been silenced and can also create understanding connection. Um, Like, so for me with a woman who holds many privileges, when I listen to stories of someone who's faced migration issues, for example, um, or faces lots of intersections in their leadership approach, it really helps me um, kind of understand um, that my view is not the only view in the world right and that these are um, that people are coming from really different places so it was to me it was just really important to include these short narratives so each chapter in the book um, concludes with one of these short narratives or counter narratives from a college student about experience that shapes their thoughts about genders and approaches to leadership um i really didn't want these stories to be like the only way to do something or here's a perfect example so there, some of them are rough in how they're formed some of them are more um um, uh, episodic in nature, maybe. Um, and some of them are very triggering, so there are there is a story about sexual violence in there, and I try to include some trigger warnings people are using them. Um, so anyway, that's kind of why I felt like they important, is that I wanted to have a book that was more, you know, a s- single author that it has more multi-vocality um, than me just writing forever. <laughs> so.
0: Well, and there's such an important addition. I know as I read, like I, I looked forward every effort in every chapter to hearing like, well, what's going to be the commentary on this? And who am I going to hear from? And you're right, it, sometimes when you read a text and you have a single author, you, you're getting sort of that same language and you're hearing um, sort of the same perspective. And you knew with the book, you were going to keep hearing different perspectives throughout. And that was really, it was really neat to have that. Um, I felt like really every single narrative that I read in there brought such depth. To the tech. So, how did you select the stories you included?
2: Well, I'm so grateful. We didn't do a like large call and then call the best stories because we wanted to represent the whole range of human experiences, right? So, actually, I gathered a, a research team that was a, I call it small but mighty, right? So, mostly many mostly women of color, mostly undergraduates with a few graduate students thrown in. I mean, we went on a two-year journey with each other where we sort of shared, we learned a lot about narrative and through a process called autoethnography that Jennifer is going to talk a little bit about, I think, in a minute. Um, and we learned how we wrote our own stories, and then we shared them with each other. Um, and so really by the end of sort of this story sharing and reflection process, anybody whose narrative wanted to be in the book, I was I wanted to include it. There were a couple students that... Not comfortable with that for various reasons. Their identity was so unique that they might have been outed in some ways, or um, they were vulnerable. You know, um, they weren't quite ready to share their story with the world, right? Yeah. So the only selection that happened was on the part of people participating in the team choosing at the end. Some of them, like right before publication, were like, "And I don't think I want to share that, right?" <laughs> so choosing to to uh, maybe not. that when they thought later about what this would mean for their own kinds of personal safety, um, to not do that. So. Um, but everybody whose story we gathered that who was willing was able to be put in and that people use pseudonyms, I encourage them to choose pseudonyms um, so that again, for the same reason, they couldn't be tracked or um, anyway,
0: I'll just stop. yeah, I know we talked last week, uh, Brene Brown came up and it made me think when you said people saying like, oh, I got to pull this back of her TED talk where she talks about her vulnerability hangover the next day and sort of really saying, oh gosh, I, you know, I got caught up and, and shared this and so I, I could imagine that in that process that there might be folks who have given some time thought, oh, I might, I might need to pull back a little bit on that. So. Yeah, we built such trust in the group. It felt
2: differently to share in a small team that had known each other several years, right. Then all of a sudden thinking that some random stranger is going to maybe pick this up you know, and read it, what they might do with that. So I I do think um, we had a lot of conversations about the politics and the, of that too.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's dig in a little more about narratives and autoethnography um, and kind of start with the basics. So Jennifer, could you talk to us a little bit about what ethno- ethnographic writing or ethnography is?
1: Sure, so um, given that this isn't a research talk per se, I will just kind of cover some broad strokes that can give sure. folks a sense of how, um, autoethnography is understood in terms of both Julie's book and her practice with the research team, as well as in the facilitation resource that is a companion to the main text. So when we think about autoethnography, um, we think about it having roots in three different places. So in social science research, um, as well as hermeneutic phenomenology, um, and then a third place would be in action research. And um, again, that there's a lot that could be said about both of those that um, is probably not the right time for for that in this uh, podcast. But but I think it's important that um, as accessible as autoethnography becomes, I think, through the text of Julie's and then in the facilitation resource, that it really does have this deep, rich connection uh, within the disciplines and within formal research uh, paradigms. And I think one of the things that's important for me in terms of autoethnography is that um, it really is um, a way for us to use personal experience as a window into cultural experience Mm -hmm. so that um, it's not just about the, the value of the individual story and what a person might learn from that about themselves through the autoethnography process but it's how do those particular stories give us a window into cultural truths and into multiple cultural truths.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. I think, um, yeah, you're right. We could probably dig in for quite a long time about all the details, but perfect for kind of a, our podcast audience today. So, um, Another term that I mentioned sort of in the intro that I'd love for you to just chat a little bit about is um, courageous conversations. So could you describe courageous conversations and what connection they have to autoethnography?
1: Yeah, I think for me um, when I hear courageous conversations, I think of courage in a number of ways. So I think it's um, the personal courage of the writer of the one who's diving into their own story and thinking about, um, not only describing a thing that happened, perhaps, you know, really drilling down to a distinct moment. Um, but continuing to be courageous and how, uh, the writer continues to like look at all of the facets to continue to drill in or to be courageous with themselves about, um, Insights that came, harms that came, hopes that came, joys that came, uh, critiques or understanding about relationship or power. You know, I think so that to me, there's like the courageous conversation that we as writers of autoethnography or personal narratives have with ourselves. Um, I also think there's a lot of courage involved in terms of this then leading into courageous conversations with each other. Um, so when I look inward and produce an, an, an autoethnography, a personal narrative, um, but then choose to share it with you, with another person, then there is also courage involved, I think, in being an open listener to being someone who is willing to hear and trying to really to hear the like core truth of experience that's being shared and that, um, can involve a bunch of different kinds of courage and humility um, and setting aside of our own preconceived knowledge. So so I think there's courage in the telling and the listening. Um, And of course, courage and courageous comes from the word core, which is heart. Um, And so really getting at the heart of the matter, the heart of the truth, the heart of what this personal experience can teach us about a larger culture.
0: Absolutely. One, it sounds like from the description that Julie gave about some of the narratives that came out, that like vulnerability and piece, it was so, so, so important. And it sounds like it was really built in that process. Um, not something certainly that you can just jump into and expect people to be able to um, participate in. So that's really helpful. Um, so, thinking about its uses, how would you describe the role of narratives, counter-narratives, and courageous conversations then in leadership education?
1: So, I, I think that um, as Julie was talking about the the narratives that are present in the in the book, really help put real life experience to ideas and concepts, so they become real in the storytelling, and also. Um, when we tell a story, it it peaks something in ourselves. You know, we might say, oh, wow, when you said that, (laughs) or when I read that, it made me think of this. And so then we create this kind of uh, web of narrative together. Um, I think working in narratives um, in leadership education also provides a really clear space for people whose voices have not always been welcome um, mm-hmm. into conversation, into literature, into ways we know, like using a narrative provides an opportunity for everyone's voice, um, to have the possibility of being heard, um, again, heard not only to themselves, but really to the others in that learning community.
0: Yeah. Which, you know, we've talked a good bit about last week and going into this week, the importance of that in, um, leadership education and the opportunity to, to not hear the, always hear the, the single story that we often hear around leadership. So um, really, really, really cool stuff, thank you. Yeah. Um, Julie, I wanna know a little bit more sort of about, about the process of this that you engaged in. I know you've talked about sort of some of the outcomes of that and um, we see that in the book, um, but could you talk a little bit about, more about the process specifically that you engaged in facilitated? Absolutely. Um, and I, th- I think I um,
2: just want to add to what Jennifer was saying so wisely, um, which is I'm very aware that white culture didn't invent storytelling, right? Like this is an appropriation we've made from Indigenous cultures for years and years and years. So um, I think of Miles Horton's work with Highlander and um, Maritza Torres is a, a student, I think she's now finished. Dr. Torres at Florida State University has taught me so much about testimonial and Latinx culture's use of story sharing. Um, even as a research methodology, so there's so much to learn there. Um, so anyway, in our process, we invited a, a fabulous uh, scholar practitioner named Dr. Julie Cho Kim. She was at the University of Maryland, and she's now at George Mason. We're proud to have her. Um, but she came in and talked to us about a little about ethnography and ethnographic writing, and one of the things that I remember most viscerally was she talked about how to write in ways that ground the story in the senses. Right, so like what is, so when you're telling your story, see if you can talk about what it smelled like, what it, we are hearing, what it felt like to be in there. Um, and so the stories weren't just distance when we wrote them, they were embodied, right? So then when we did this echoing process um, where we read the story and someone talked about what it, other person's story raised in them, it became such a powerful space. So can you imagine someone reading a story of sexual violence with all the feelings and senses embedded into it so there were tears in this process um, there was laughter at times right there was joyous what am I? favorite um narratives in the book is this woman who talked about how her father's the best feminist she knows even though he would like hate that term right <laughs> um, but all the different ways he advocated for her and like how he would go buy feminine hygiene products and not be embarrassed about it or make her you know so just I just love superstar that. dad that's right that's right dads are good so it was it was just a really cool process to um to see so but it was an emotional journey, so I, I don't know, Ali could tell you more since she was part of this from the beginning, but I definitely felt like when we went in the room, we had to sort of get, there was a readiness that had to happen to hear each other's stories and to receive stories, because um, they would, As just Jennifer described, they were gonna bring up things in ourselves. So, so we engaged in that process, um, um, and I guess, I think that's what I wanna say about it, but it was powerful and it brought us even closer as a team. Um, and I, I don't think in that room at that moment, I understood how powerful it would be when other students read the stories. So.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: so I think I'm gonna turn it over to Allie. Um, she has b- volunteered bravely to share a part of her story. So I'm so uh, grateful to you, Allie, for your vulnerability to, to sort of read a moment about um, your gender journey um, with our podcast mm-hmm. group. So take
4: it away. Thank you, Julie. So I'm going to share my autoethnography about um, my journey to become a university faculty member. So I will start. I often ask myself the following question. If I were a white male native English speaker, would my experience as an instructor and academic advisor be different? After I began teaching courses and sharing my office with a white male, I started to ask myself this question more frequently, and this has let me reflect more deeply on my academic journey to become a faculty member. A while ago, female student mentioned that she did not like taking classes taught by women faculty color. She was in my course a few years ago, but switched to the different section of the same course taught by a white male faculty. She expressed this opinion to the white male advisor in spite of the fact that I was also in our office. This statement might not be directly related related to the issue of women of color being perceived as less authoritative, but I wonder if she would have said this if I were personally perceived as more of an authority figure. This experience has also proven that as a woman, I need to prove my skills and knowledge and also establish my authority more rigorously than my male colleagues, whether I assume a role as an academic advisor or faculty member. However, because I am a soft-spoken person and value the virtue of humble, I struggle between staying authentic to myself and doing the opposite. It is my professional philosophy that I cannot really think about my students' concerns as well as their learning and development without being authentic to myself. At the same time, I believe that without being authentic to myself, I will become burned out and that someone will eventually notice my sickness. This is why I believe that being authentic to myself is important in academia, but as a woman, I face another controversial issue. Being an Asian woman in academia is complicated. Faculty, administrators, students adopt this Presumptions of incompetence when women faculty of color differ from cultural norms of academia, which is white, heterosexual, and middle and upper middle class. Constantly being perceived as incompetent individuals who do not belong in academia has caused internalized oppression and my low self efficacy as scholars and professors.
0: Howie, thank you so much for being willing to share that. Um, I mean, I asked Julie at the beginning of last week about the bravest thing she's done or most daring thing, and um, I think what sharing on a podcast like that—a very personal story—is incredibly daring. So thank you.
2: Can I say thank you as well, Kate? Just thank you, Allie, for for sharing that. I just hear so much in your story. You know, I can't imagine the hoods of that student to come in with a room where you're in there and talk about she doesn't want to take courses with faculty of color, and then your own sort of authenticity journey from that. So thank you mm-hmm. for or bringing to light. Um, I just want to also say that, that Ali's dissertation research is on microaggressions by faculty of color. So people could mm-hmm. Google Yamanaka <laughs> um, a uh, her dissertation abstracts and find out a lot more about um, her journey and things that she, her participants revealed. So. And I think Sherelle's yeah. gonna talk a little bit about um, um, reflections about the overall process and what she sort of witnessed as part of this team.
3: Well, I just, I also want to honor uh, before I even start, just honor Aoi for her bravery and just, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the podcast, we were talking about, you know, Brene Brown and this notion of vulnerability. I think what Aoi's just demonstrated is what that looks like to engage in a courageous conversation, although we can't be in control of how people might pr- receive it, right? We are knowing that we're putting in the atmosphere for people to to grow, and I, I want to acknowledge that that's a an opportunity that Aoi is giving us as a gift, and it's not like an automatic privilege or expectation. So I share that because even though I share that same philosophy, you know, participating in this experience was really challenging about how much did I want to share, what did I want to share, crafting my story in a way um, that I did not, um, that I articulated myself as clearly as I could, but also recognizing that I wanted to be true, right? When we're talking about experiences, particularly with people with marginalized identities, when we're navigating the leadership terrain of the academy, it's complicated. And so oftentimes when I'm writing my story, it's often where I'm talking about my experiences with well-intentioned, well-meaning, you know, white, liberal, progressive women, right? Most of my experiences, not all, um, who really wanted to, to learn and really saw me as an asset to enhance their learning so they could become better professionals, right? And so that was very troubling for me to talk about those moments where um, they misstepped, right? Or they're operating within white supremacy frameworks or how, as a result, I experience a microaggression or a stereotype threat or how I'm triggered as a result of that. But if I don't share that, then there's learning that's not happening. So this notion of being courageous is at a risk, right? And the backlash that could come as a result of that. But I feel that, you know, what's most important is that we're really trying to uncover or talk about the complications around women in leadership. And some of those are a result of people's intersecting identities, right, that are often marginalized, right? And so, you know, and oftentimes we want to learn things for the sake of, you know, it's the right professional thing to do, but it's not what we really want to do because to do that means to be vulnerable, but to also acknowledge some of the bias that we all possess, right, myself included. And so when I was you know, kind of thinking about my story, I went through moments, right? And I'm not going to share it like the same way that Owie did, but I just went through moments Uh, of where as a colleague, you know, I was questioning them, right, and their legitimacy and how they didn't mean to use me as a token. But every time you ask for my advice around issues that evolve with race, then that's really what you see my expertise. That's the bottom line, right? And so I also felt the need to share it because I didn't, I wasn't the only one experiencing this, right? I had a group of colleagues of other women of color, and we would often lament about how frustrating it was. So I felt like it was something that I was obligated also to do. But now that it's out there, you know, I still wonder, right? Is there are there people that are offended? Are there people that, you know, would love to have follow up conversation with me if they feel like, you know, that is something that they want to talk about? I would be open to it. But even this embodied experience of the process, I guess, what I wanted to talk about was very visceral, right? So when you're listening to stories, you hear it, you taste it, you touch it, you smell it. You can't sit, but just like Ali did when she was. You know sharing her story i had a visceral reaction right even though i'm on a podcast right i'm nodding my head i'm looking irritated my face is you know my, my face facial expression has dramatically changed and that's kind of that camaraderie that we all had and it was it was shared as a result of these countering experiences right where we often felt like our experiences weren't normal but became normalized because we all shared them as a collective and through that gave this connection where we not only embodied the experience, but got together, right, as a as a group um, to support each other, but also to challenge the dominant paradigm that's often um, doesn't include us, right? And so, how do we center our experiences as not only being um, legitimate but intelligible? when We think about this notion of le- leadership coupled with gender, right? And so I think that's something um, that I did want to share about the experience and how grateful I am for it, um, even though it was difficult
4: going through the process. Absolutely. I also want to add what Cheryl say. It's more like, you know, I learned, you know, Julie and Cheryl might be able to tell that I wasn't vulnerable at all. I wasn't good at uh, sharing my, you know, negative or like a harsh experience in the past. But writing this auto-ethnography basically allowed me to be vulnerable. and I learned to be vulnerable from this experience. So in the past, you know, I was harsh to myself and blaming myself on my experiences. But reflecting on my experiences and listening to other stories allowed me to analyze my experience more deeply. And then also allow me to confront with my experiences and change my perspective on my experiences. So even when I was writing my dissertation, my dissertation committee member asked me, because I did the phenomenology that I needed to put my experience, they asked me, are you really be able to um put your experience on your dissertations? But because of this research experience, I say, I could, I became vulnerable and then I can now put my experiences on my dissertation too. So that's something I learned also from this, um research
0: experience with Julie. I think you touch a little bit on, or at least makes me think about, I, I kind of wondered as I was reading about this process and about autoethnography in general and, and wondering sort of about the legitimacy of it and like whether it was perceived as legitimate. Um, I perceive it, let me make that clear, as <laughs> a very legitimate, but wondering, you know, it sounds like there, there's a little bit of that there for you of, of thinking about like, do people see this as legitimate. And then it got me thinking about, well, gosh, sometimes I think even the legitimacy of, of leadership studies is questioned and like, can we really study leadership or can we understand, you know, um, I hear that from, from colleagues sometimes. And so it, it, it sort of, those two things wrapped together were interesting to me to think about of like, how do we, um, continue to make sure that it's seen as legitimate and make sure that stories are, are taken seriously and, um, and heard. So I'm glad that this book provided a window to do that. Kate, okay. oh, yeah, no. <laughs> I just want to jump in. Oh, sorry. I no. Yeah, Here, I was going to go. too.
3: No, yeah, go for it. You go first. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I guess I was just going to say, Kate, that's really interesting because I think about paradigms that we possess and we value, right? This post-positivist, like this absolute truth, what does truth look like? And so auto-ethn- not autoethnograph, oh, I can't talk. I'm having, I'm tongue time right now. But when we're thinking about autoethnography, it's interesting that even that in and of itself has to have some legitimacy for us to feel like it's valid enough to center these experiences, to help teach us and educate us around leadership. So- Because We haven't had those previous stories like it's not a secret that we didn't examine the experiences of women of color and how they think about leaderships until recently until this critical wave has come. So I think for us, even the way we question it, the fact that it is that we're questioning it and and seeing it's legitimate. I think that's a good thing, because then at least we can acknowledge that we hold on to that baggage. So then what are we going to do to disrupt that so we can move to this more critical understanding? So that's all I was going to say, yeah, so go ahead, No, that's really, yeah. (laughs)
2: Um, Yeah, I was just going to add to that and say that I teach a class in research is resistance, right? And it's all those things you talked about, Kate, it's like how do we trouble what counts as research in the academy or, um, you know, why we even need to triangulate data um, and qualitative research to approximate sort of Goodness in quantitative research, right? Validity. Um, so, anyway, I think there's that. What I'm finding is that autoethnography is falling under a larger umbrella of evocative inquiry, which is really cool. So, there's mm-hmm. all kinds of cool people. The more I like out there, troubling the boundaries of legitimacy and research and doing really cool works with poetry and arts and other kinds of um, um, things that are evocative of self to surface some of these kinds of stories in ways that transform the world. So, I'm excited about where scholarship is going and allowing more places for that. And I do think that leadership, especially under like a multidisciplinary group like the International Leadership Association is allowing for more of those things to be seen. And we presented on some of this this fall at ILA, um, I guess it's called 19. And we had like a packed room. We were shocked that the packed room came to hear about autoethnography. So yeah.
0: excited that
2: people are interested, so
0: yeah. Good, good. I am relieved and glad, really glad to hear that, so. Um, well, I'd love to talk a little bit more um, just about, I guess, how autoethnography has contributed to, for any of you, sort of your understanding of gender and leadership. Um, the book notes um, that the stories we tell ourselves and the stories um, that we tell about ourselves matter, right? And they help us to shape sort of our, our self-identity and, and what we think about um, with our own understanding of gender and leadership. So Anything for you all that sort of is rising to the surface you would want to talk about with regard to that?
3: I guess, I guess I'll kind of start. Um, as I was thinking about my own story and listening to the other participants share their stories, something that came up to me is what type of leadership is valued and privileged? Right. So I shared a lot of snippets or small stories throughout. Um, and I, when I thought about all of those situations and all of those scenarios, I'm just reminded of what leadership is appreciated. And for me, when you think about gender and leadership, right, it's automatically complicated for me because as a black woman, there's a stereotype or a racist trope of the angry black woman that I often have to navigate, right? So if I become too intense for women, it's a bitch, right? That's the stereotype, but for me, it's yep. like the angry black bitch, right? Yep. So when I navigate those leadership spaces, right, and recognizing how um, you know gender has been constructed for me and how race has been constructed for me where people have a certain expectation, I've had to learn how to adapt using various leadership styles that can be perceived Um, in ways that make it easier to work with me, to understand me, to respond to me more effectively, for my professionalism not to be questioned. And so when I think about that, there are often these hierarchical, right? Not flats, but hierarchical leadership expectations where you cannot be too aggressive, too emotional. You have to remain calm um, in in situations. Um, Even though my natural style is more of a collective person, I share decision-making. I really like things that are flat and we all get to weigh in. That's not always appreciated, right? Uh, Because the expectation is you're the leader, quote, right? And that you have this expertise that everyone else kind of needs to fall in line. And so when I think about, you know, as I continue to interrogate this idea of leadership and how it's complicated with gender, right? And for me, it's even more complicated with race. I didn't even talk about like other, you know, identity categories like ability uh, or things like that. So for me, like these, when I got the chance, right, to really think about this, I'm kind of left with this piece of if we just focus on making yourself um, able to be understood for the audience and so you can be more effective, right? So we often talk about use this leadership style to navigate this situation and use this leadership style to navigate that situation. Well, the problem with that is that we're not interrupting any systems, right? We're not any interrupting any systems that are problematic for certain populations when we ask people to just put on this hat and switch on a different hat. And we're also asking people to not be their whole, in you know, like authentic selves. And so I feel like with leadership, like this next, what we should be focusing on or as I continue to think about my own story is I began to question um, you know, leadership philosophies or strategies or, you know, paradigms and how we really need to rethink this in order to be more effective for all people, right? And if we're, if we're working to make leadership an opportunity for all folks to, to have access to, not just women, right, then we'll really interrogate this using more of a critical lens that talks about systems of injustice and inequity.
0: Thank you so much.
1: It feels like that requires a pause for thought, Sherelle. Uh, thank you. Um, I think when I, when I uh, part of what I was evoked in me, uh, Sherelle, listening to you, was really just thinking about my own experience the last, say, two years. So, Julie and I have been on this journey about this book, uh, her textbook, and then the facilitation resource for two years now. And during that same time, I have actually done a lot more intentional um, work around my own sense of gender and leadership. And uh, as a queer white woman, uh, those are a couple of my identities that fold into how I understand gender and leadership as well. Um, And what I'm finding, I guess, an insight is how valuable it's been to be able to share that journey, not only with the staff that I lead, but also with students that I encounter. I'm not in a classroom, but I have students in our office um, who are associated with us, but but really being um, in trying to be more authentic about my own leadership journey. Um, it is helping students, I believe, as well as my staff um, be more authentic in that journey as well and, and really recognize complexities and be willing to um, think about their own internal barriers, perhaps, uh, to how they want to be in the world. and um, And so much of that is around for me around what kind of leader, what kind of ex- leadership do I want to exercise in the world, and I think that's one of the most key questions that we want to ask students. It's like, who, who am I, uh, who am I called to be in the world, and how do I want to exercise the leadership um,
4: that I'm called to? I also, you know, Cheryl's story also remind me um, my own Kind of, I would say experiment last semester regarding my leadership role. So sometimes, you know, we need to act to fit into the dominant narratives of leadership. So last semester, I basically decided to take more um, nurturing role in my class and did not apply strict rules. Just because I was so curious to know, you know, how my relationship with students and my course evaluation will be different by taking that role. And then my course variation was higher last semester. And then, no other student basically challenged me last semester. So, then some people might say, you know, yeah, of course, because, you know, I wasn't, I were carrying my students and I didn't apply strict rules. But this also implies that, you know, um, there's an expectation for my performance based on my race and gender. And so, if I were uh, like a white male, probably students wouldn't still challenge me even if I apply for the strict rule to my class, or I didn't take that caring role, right? So it was very interesting to see those results last semester. I think, Howie, I just want to say, I think that's
3: interesting that you say I had to take on this caring role, right? So even the expectations around what that means or what that looks like, or you trying your own experiment. So for you, it just shows you like we have expectations around, you know, who we are, right? in, in terms of our gender, and so then for you, it was like, let me take on this role, right? So we just, we, I, I like that. I love that because I think it just allows us to start to question that you know, just because you identify maybe as a woman doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to fit this nurturing, motherly, caring, you know, understanding, right, that you still can't have boundaries. So I I just think that that's fascinating.
1: But I think your experiment also presupposes what caring is. I mean, I don't know you deeply, Aoi, but I think of you as a caring person, right? (laughs) But students may have had a particular expectation of what caring was. So when you said you Mm -hmm. became more caring, I hear that as you became more caring in a way that students wanted or expected. Right, right. So I did Mm
4: care.
1: So it's fast. like the experiment you did is fascinating and deeply saddening this, you know, troubling, right? Yeah.
0: Um. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank y'all for being willing to share a little bit about what sort of being in this experience was like. I'm, I'm pretty confident that um, we have a number of listeners who were already excited about this concept or are more excited about this, given the way y'all have talked so passionately about um, the I'm like you, Sherelle, now I can't say it. Um, process. So um, I'm curious if you all or just would hope that you might be willing to talk a little bit about some of the ways that you've utilized this approach as educators, because I'm, again, confident that now we have some people that are hooked and will want to know, okay, this sounds great, but what do I do with it? How do I use it? Um, and I know you all have some varying experiences from curricular, co-curricular, sort of some different things that you might be willing to talk about. So Aoi, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I would say two ways. First,
4: I this auto ethnography become my advocacy tool as an educator too. So oftentimes, not every student, but some students, whenever they think about social justice issues, they always just try to challenge system a larger scale. But I just want always want to introduce this auto ethnography or counter narrative. It is also a powerful tool to advocate for um justice. So, for example, whenever I teach a social justice course, I always invite two guest speakers, and two guest speakers share their experiences, and I also share my experiences of microaggressions or other social justice issues in higher education by reading my autoethnography. So, the purpose of doing it is, is not only introduce um, injustice that, you know, how instructors of color experience or women uh, faculty of color experience in social uh, in higher education but also to introduce power of narrative in that context so that as an educator i always um, um, use a different methods to share experiences so the student can compare the impact of power of the um, counter narrative with other ways to share experiences
0: that's exciting. Thank you. Julie, have hey, I'll, Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I'll share there. if you
2: don't mind. Um, I definitely have uh, co-opted this. I call it, actually, my secret sauce in my, whenever I do a class or a workshop. <laughs> um, and the secret's not really that difficult. I don't know why it took me 20 years to figure out. But it's like, get out of students' ways and let them reveal them their true selves, right? Um, I think so often, we don't know who's in the space with us, right? We make assumptions about who's in the space with us. So I start all my classes. Um, with, a, with something I call a moment of obligation talk. Um, and it's really like a five minute unscripted sh- story sharing that student, I invite students to do. And I have a couple go each week, so we're not doing 20 or 30 at a time. Um, and I call them gifts. It's not like a hot seat situation where someone tells a story and you get to ask all kinds of follow-up questions, which is, I'm the most guilty of that. I wanna know all the follow-up questions. Um, But students share these gifts and the idea is there's no slides and they're asked to think, I asked to think about something related to the course. So for my leadership theory classes, it's like a time when you felt called to act beyond self-interest, right? And that's at the core of um, socially responsible leadership. And so they don't know that, but it's actually a leadership talk as well. Um, And students will come up with such a wide variety of things. Um, In my gender and leadership class, I asked them to give a GPS, a gendered perspective story. And I asked them to think about the time that they most felt their gender. It was most salient to them. And that could be either for positive or negative. And so, again, these little five-minute moments of vulnerability. So students will stand up. And I just have heard such a range of stories, everything from – I mean like terrible stories around stalking and sexual violence and um eating disorders and folks who've had tough um, um family experiences having really different gendered norms in their families and then also to hysterically laughing hysterically around like bad dating stories um in a funny way you know guys who are men and women who are clueless in the dating scene right or yeah. stories of i didn't know about this um movement on period parties where some families, when you become a woman biologically, they throw these large parties. (laughs) So I've been stunned by these people. I almost felt my gender when my family threw a big party because I came of age and I was like, what's happening? So anyway, they've just been very powerful from all the different ranges, right? From the sublime to like just um, um, one of my favorite stories, a woman revealed that she always had really bad period cramps. And it turns out she went, She and her mom was like, "Oh, suck it up. It's part of being a woman." And they went to the doctor. And she had two biologically, two uteruses. Which I oh know it's God. a thing. It's a thing, right? So uh, this idea. So, but uh, those kinds of knowledge that when we laugh, we cry. But those starting a starting a class or a program centered in a student's experience, and then they're revealing something um, about themselves. Um, I just it shifts the whole classroom dynamic. It shifts how people come. To the content they're supposed to learn, because we don't learn content, content unless connected to our own experiences, right? Um, so I just want to say it's such a powerful kind of uh, a way to tool to use. There's a couple books out um, that are of the press people might not know about, but one from, it's from IAP Press called Thinking to Transform, Reflection and Leadership Learning by Jillian Volpe White, Kathy Guthrie, and Rita Torres. Um, but it's a fabulous volume about how to use this kind of reflection and narratives. And there's also a facilitation guide that comes with it. <laughs> um, so I highly suggest, again, thinking to transform reflection and leadership learning and the facilitating reflection and leadership learning companion manual. But they have lo- um, more ideas than just we're able to share here about ways to weave narrative and story and autoethnography into all kinds of leadership development experiences.
0: I love your suggestion that you, you know, that you start there with the program, because I think so much of the leadership education programming that I've done, we have some sort of experience, and then we say, now let's reflect on that experience, or um, we, we sort of use reflection as an as a ending instead of a beginning point of thinking about like where are we coming from, and then how do we use that together. Um, and I think that is a significant shift. And can
2: I say one more thing, and then I know Cheryl wants to jump in here, but um, I would say one thing I forgot to say is that some students could do this in the first five seconds. We have our extroverted sort of students who are very comfortable talking about themselves, and so I always ask them to sort of go first, right? And some students, this is the hardest thing they'll do all semester. They would rather write a 20 page research paper and stand up for five minutes without notes, cards, or PowerPoint and talk about something that happened to them. So Mm -hmm. I have to, I also wanted to put out that we need to recognize the range of challenges for people when we ask them to do that. Um, But usually when 15 people have gone, you know, they feel more capable and they know that no matter what they share, it's not a graded assignment. You know, they're going to be, they're going to be in a place that's going to receive what they have to say in powerful ways. And so often they surprise themselves even what they chose to share. We'll start sharing one thing and something really real comes out. Um, So anyway, I just want to. Shamal, how have you used this stuff in your programs and
3: courses? Well, I was just going to say that I stole Julie's idea in my own classes and it's phenomenal and it works really well. So I'm not trying to vouch, but I am. And the other thing is she does where she talks about like expectations, about brave space. And I did, you know, I do the same thing, brave space versus safe space. Why your safe space sucks just to talk about, you know, what happens. I even throw in like a triggering cycle. So I guess what I would say is, once you start engaging in this, because you know students, you know that there's gonna be difficult conversations and where there might be difficulty around difference, thinking about how do you manage that or do you have a framework or a mechanism to help students talk through that, right? What I heard you say is you appreciated them being brave, but you also expected them to be brave. Do you see how that could be problematic, right? So whatever tool you're using to use as a way to move through that difficult, conversation because I know some people want to refrain like I'm afraid of students that if this doesn't land well so I'm just not going to do it right and I guess what I want to say is you know, Jennifer is going to give us a whole a, another list of recommendations that I highly recommend. But I just don't want people to be afraid, right? And instead, use yourself as the example as the person that made some mistakes. Like I always share, like the most insensitive thing that I just said last week to them, right? So I try to model like what Julie does in her class, like in mine, so that way stu- students are see me as a human, but also so we can forgive ourselves of not being perfect, but to try it, right? Because as a result of that, stu- you know the experience will be more rewarding and we can get to a a place where we hope students are when we think about complicated topics like this.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, really important for us to think through.
1: I thought I would just add a um, kind of an extension, say, of Julie's uh, moment of obligation or the gender perspective story as as a way to kind of take that to another place and that's um, through something I call uh, a storyteller, storytelling, and echoes activity, um, and it's something that I first learned about from Dr. Francine Holfgren at the University of Maryland, um, who was my um, hermeneutic phenomenology guru and guide uh, while I was there. Um, and what what she led us through was this an activity that took place over time, and this is the part where I think Julie's notion of um, how uh, I'm sorry, Julie's notion of um, of asking people to tell a story and giving us time to maybe think about that and uh, prepare prepare ourselves in the sharing, but also just to think about what we're going to share. So, um, for in, in Francine's class, and then I've I've replicated this in some other places. We would ask um, students for a, a, a central question. So maybe it is uh, like the gender perspective story, like when the moment when you um, imagined or came to know yourself as gendered, and uh, so person would write that, and then um, come back to class and share it with another person in the class, and you would exchange papers. And then this is where the echo comes in, that students would um, then have to r- write something back and they would take it home, have a week, or whatever. Um, and they had three choices. We had three choices. Um, what I think you said. So I think, uh, so here's what your story, I'm going to retell your story in my words. Um, and the second would be like what your story evokes in me. The so like, when you told, when you told your story, here's what it brought up for me and I'm going to sh- like have an echo back to you of something that it evoked in me. Um, and then the third, which some students find totally uncomfortable and others find totally fun is the like interpretive poem or drawing, which is, like my, um, my symbolic interpretation of what I heard. Um, and so offering people an opportunity not only to tell their story, but then to have it received by someone else and then get a gift in return essentially um, has been a really powerful way to incorporate narratives um, in leadership education.
2: And I'm just gonna plug, I know Jennifer's is talking about it in a minute, but. Um, Jennifer has written that module in the facilitation guide so people can actually get their hands on that. That echo uh, part is such a powerful moment. Jennifer, I completely agree.
0: Wonderful. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and unfortunately for me, wrap us up because I've enjoyed this conversation so much, but um, I want to sort of think that we ended last week, um, Julie, with, with the concept of hope. And I just loved how it sort of wrapped up around that last week. And so I'd love to end there again this week. So um, Julie, you share in the the book, Prescott and Brookfield's nine learning tasks of leadership. And I love the learning task of learning how to sustain hope in the face of struggle. It's one of the tasks. And one of the suggested ways to pursue that notion is to share examples of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, which I think is certainly in line with the idea of storytelling here. Um, so how has storytelling and listening to stories contributed to your ability to sustain hope?
2: Oh, Kate, I love this question so much. Um, and I'm actually going to do what I do in my classes all the time, which I'm going to turn it around back on you. Like My students are like, you always ask or answer a question with a question. I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> so anyway, I, I'm curious what you think. I know you recently went through a storytelling workshop as part of the ACC Leadership conference. I don't know it if that's where way we go, but what are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, it's the exactly stories aren't means. always hopeful, but sometimes they are, right?
0: Yeah. You know, that's exactly what came to mind for me. So yeah, I've shared this with Julie earlier. What she's referencing is um, I had the opportunity to attend our ACC leadership symposium this year with our students, our Clemson delegation. Um, and every year the host institution gets to select the theme. Um, it's always around social change, but it can be sort of anything within that. Um, and our host this year, the University of Louisville chose reaching social change through storytelling as the theme of the symposium. Um, and I'll be honest, at first I was like, I don't get it. Like, I'm not following, I don't know what they're going to do with this. I sort of went in going like, how are they going to make a weekend of this? Um, and it was phenomenal. It's, I've been to the symposium a lot of times and we hosted at Clemson. So I'm very familiar with it. Um, and I think it's the best one I've ever been to, um, they didn't bring in a single, uh, you know, keynote speaker that came in and rattled off the things students need to know to lead well on their campus. They didn't put their own students on a pedestal, which I think often is what happens is the pattern is like, here, we're going to show you our top five student leaders on our campus and you can learn from them. Um, instead they brought in experienced storytellers to share their stories and to prepare the students in the room to tell their own stories. So on, um, the final night that we were there, it's a two-day experience, so pretty quick, but they, um, they had randomly selected 10 students at the symposium. Um, the students had to put their own name in because I do think, Sherelle, your point about like sort of that bravery and, and courage and willingness to do that and all that. It was wrapped up in that. It's a very vulnerable thing to do, um, but so students had to self-select to want to do it, but and a ton of students did. They pulled them out of a hat and the students had a chance to work with a storyteller to prepare any story that they wanted to tell to this whole group of students from across all 15 of the ACC institutions. Um, And it was so powerful and so amazing. They, um, just like the stories of how they've come to understand themselves and their identity um, and the stories of resilience and hope that came with that. You know, I think um, it was probably honestly more hopeful than I felt about social change in a long time because it was students talking about some really difficult things but talking about how that has fueled their commitment to addressing those issues. And um, they wanted to inspire people to care in the room and every single one of them did. And it was, it was funny because all of them, um, they were so passionate and so motivated um, but you could tell like they were they were nervous to do it. A lot of them afterwards were like, Oh, you know, I meant to say this and I didn't and I and I forgot this and I and you know, from the audience perspective, everyone was like, No, you it was amazing, you know. But every single one of the students felt like they, you know, they could have done more, or said more. Um, but it is something now that I just want to bring back to Clemson. I'm like, can we do this like every Saturday night? We're just gonna have a Saturday night like storytelling. Um, because I I do, I think it was it was really powerful. Um, So I'm incredibly hopeful for, I think, just the next generation of um, student leaders and their ability to be resilient and hopeful and um, to share stories like that. And it's really helped me to rethink leadership programming and some of the things that we can do because I think the model was, like the mold was totally broken by the University of Louisville this year and the way that they approached the symposium.
2: Who are looking for good ideas for conferences, right? <laughs> like, so like, that sounds like a awesome You could use a lot of these resources and map them into a leadership retreat or a leadership conference. So, but I guess I can just feel you. I'm with you, Kate. I sort of came in as reluctant, and then it's been so powerful. So, um, again, what people have known for thousands of years, sometimes it takes us longer to get there.
0: Right? The other thing I will say that I, I sort of hadn't thought about, and probably should have thought about more until this conversation, but I think the people that were given an opportunity, again, they were picked from a hat, but um, they were a more diverse group, visually diverse, and some of the stories that they told, some of the identities that they shared, more diverse than I think we typically hear when we hear leadership speakers and from those, those different voices and, and giving um, a spotlight to those voices was really important. So I think trying to embed that into leadership programming as well, making sure the people that are, are getting getting the spotlight and getting an opportunity to share their story and not have their story told about them, but the opportunity to tell their own story, um, it's really important, so.
2: Yeah, and that's how we break down so many stereotypes. You know, I remember that there was a white man in my women's leadership class who shared about how he secretly, he played football, but he secretly liked to write romantic poetry at night. You know, like it just totally changes your paradigm, right? Uh, By letting someone share their narrative, it's harder to put them into a box no matter who they are, so.
0: Absolutely. Well, this was so fun. I um, am so appreciative of y'all being here and I'm thrilled that we still have one more week to sort of talk about these topics. So Jennifer, you'll be with us again next week with a few other guests. Do you mind to say a few words about what we can expect?
1: Sure. Thanks, Kate. Um, so yeah, I'll be back along with Tricia Tig, Adrian Bitton and Danielle Reynolds. And we're going to be talking about the Women and Leadership Development in College, the facilitation resource that both acts as a companion piece to the text that Julie wrote. So if you were using that text in a program or a class, you can kind of follow along, a uh, teacher's manual so- somewhat, if you will. But it's really also a really cool standalone resource um, for anyone who's facilitating women in leadership development um, in any kind of setting. So the... The volume has 30 plus contributors. There are 35 modules. Um, and so Trisha, Adrian, Danielle and I will be here virtually with y'all and we will share the experience of thinking about teaching and learning leadership as well as how narratives can play into that and just some of their experiences of um, implementing some of the modules, some of them that they have written but also some of the others in the, in the text itself. So should be fun, looking forward to it.
0: Me too, exciting stuff. Um, well, Ali, Cheryl, Jennifer, Julie, thank you so much for being here with us and for your time today and um, more to come next week. Thank you.